Hi, welcome to Minds Behind Maps. I'm Maxim Lenemand, and this is the latest episode in this experiment where I want to sit down with people who are creating and using anything geospatial to try to understand more about the field and the people in it. Today, my guest is Chinmay Advaryu, the founder of Influent, a company focusing on water damage assessments. I wanted to talk with Chimney because of a recent Twitter thread he posted on his experience founding a previous company, EarthLab, in the field of Earth observation. In this thread, he mentioned he decided to close EarthLab, and he shares some thoughts as to why, which we talk about in this episode. We don't talk only about the technology involved in building a specific product, but rather on finding something useful to build and how to solve a real problem. This was an interesting conversation, as Chimnea has experienced this firsthand in a way that I just haven't. We talk about Chimnea's ties to India and his journey to the US and Europe, and how that has helped him decide to tackle water damage as his current focus. As people who have listened to some previous conversation know, I've worked on flood monitoring in the past, and I wanted to know how Chimnea is tackling it himself, but from a different angle. Chinmay shares some of his journey as a founder within the Earth observation industry through some of his previous experience in Internet of Things, or IoT in short. In this podcast, I've talked with people who have been working within the Earth observation industry for years, but I also want to hear from people like Chimnay who have only quite recently started working within this field and how they see opportunities and why they decide to stay. As usual, you'll find some timestamps and some links to the different topics we discuss in the show notes. You'll find links to Chinmay's Twitter thread I mentioned earlier and that we discuss, as well as some of his social media links there. You can also reach out to me directly on Twitter, where I'm at Max Lunnemans, or you can follow news from the podcast at Minds Behind Maps on Twitter as well. If you're not there, and you can also reach out to me by email, and that's at minds.behind.maps at gmail.com. Again, all of those will be in the show notes. I hope you enjoy, and this is my conversation with Chinmay Advaryu. Hi, Chimney. Welcome to Minds Behind Maps. Um, it's it's great to have you. Thanks for uh, for coming over. Um, as you probably know, I, I ask the same question to everybody when I start the podcast. So. Um, I'd like to ask you uh, how you would describe yourself. Well, thanks, Max, for having me over. Super excited. Um, let me check my notes for those questions. I've had like different renditions here. Uh, no, just joking. Um, uh, today I was thinking about this. How would I answer this question? And I think um, I'm just a curious person. Um, that's how I would start. Uh, part of my identity is tied uh, to being Indian. Uh, and you will see how that's important later on uh, as well. Um, but I'm just a curious person uh, who's an engineer, so who has some basic understanding of mathematics and physics, and just tries to uh, apply that to some of the more important problems of our, our, of our time. Um, yeah, and I love flying. Uh, oh, cool. That's why I'm an aerospace engineer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, hopefully one day I'll uh, get my uh, license as well. Um, yeah. Nice. So I, I think that's how I would describe myself at least. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So let's let's start there. You say you're a you're an aerospace engineer. I, I can uh, totally relate. I'm I'm one as well. Um, yeah. So how did you? How does um, someone that that's curious 
<clears throat> sorry, go through aerospace engineering and then our field, which is not really aerospace engineer engineering, yeah. sorry, that much anymore. Yeah. Can you kind of walk me through kind of how all of that happened? Yeah, it was actually curiosity as well. A um, few years ago, I think this was 2018, I was helping a friend uh, with some, some API issues. He, that's how he described it. Okay. Um, and it was Python and I, I went and looked at it and it was Planet Labs API. And, uh, that got me curious, like, oh, all this satellite data. I didn't know that this existed. All right. Uh, so that's what kind of started the journey. And then back then Planet Labs had uh, free access to data for California at least. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I just started playing with that data and like, as one does, uh, my first thing was let's count ship because <laughs> that was like the most easily available algorithm uh, at that point. Um, and that got me thinking like, okay, if all this data is available, there must be a lot of people using this. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like a very uh, typical rabbit hole for a lot of people in our industry as mm -hmm. well that, oh, I have this data. What can I solve with it? Uh, and that's how I went about it. So I just started talking with people, at least in my network, uh, because previous to this, I worked with uh, one of the largest cold storage companies in the world. And, and they had to deal with a lot of logistics issues and operational issues. So I started thinking about like, oh, can this be, can some of these issues be solved with this satellite data? Right. So I just started checking with people and the, answer I got was either they were not aware that if this data can be uh, useful to them or if this data was available to them uh, as well. Uh, a lot of them had just assumed um, only hedge funds were interested in this uh, for counting cars in uh, right. grocery store parking lot. <laughs> so, yeah. You were already familiar with like how to access that data, just like using things like Python and, and, uh, you mentioned uh, algorithms to be able to count those ships. So you were already familiar with those things um, when you started doing that? Yeah, it's like when I helped my friend, I, I would just, after that, I would just spend a uh, few hours on weekends mm. uh, to play with it. And that's how I built a lot of that initial understanding of it. I'm not an right. expert by any means. Um, even today, like a uh, lot of the deep learning stuff or a lot of the uh, SAR specific technical stuff, I wouldn't claim to be an expert, but I had right. enough understanding of what was possible with it um, and started to un understand where the industry was going. So. Right, right, right. And so what, what happens after that? So you start playing around with it, you, you start talking to people and, and realize that they're not leveraging that. So, so what happens there? Yeah, so uh, again, this is, I bet like a lot of uh, founders in this space go through this similar story where then you decide to take it upon yourself, like, oh, I'm going to solve this problem. And the first assumption I made was it's because people just don't know what's available to them. Right. And even if, even if they do, they don't know um, how to do something with it. So let's solve that problem. So my first idea was um, something mix of, um, Skywatch and Up42, 
you're like, let's make an API that accesses data from all over. Uh, so a sort of marketplace well that, that you would be able, so for, for people who don't know those, those companies kind of try to aggregate um, everything so that instead of having to go through everybody, you go through them to kind of access everything, kind of like a supermarket of satellite image data. Yeah, and then I, I went slightly further and I said, okay, well, a lot of the problem set from technical standpoint is very similar. Um, so it's similar type of image recognition or object recognition uh, type of problems. So can right. we build kind of like a, a central algorithm that does 80% of the analysis and then for rest 20%, we can have specialized uh, specialized algorithms uh, to detect certain type of features. Mm -hmm. um, so that would bring down the training cost uh, on at least the computer vision side, but that would also create large enough training data set that can cover a lot of the edge cases as well. As well. So that was, that was the original idea that I started with, but I did not have any specific business application in mind at that point. Right. So you were building something you didn't really know who for. Is yeah. that right? Yep. So how did how did that go? Um, I mean, I, I kind of already can imagine, but like, <laughs> like yeah, I'm, I'm curious kind of how did that, um, you know, it it's really hard, I think, when you're in the in the meat of it, like you're really deep down to realize that maybe there's you don't really know. What, what the people need. So I'm curious to go, like, if you could walk me through that, what that process was like. Yeah, so a couple of things happened. Um, so one thing you should know is like for last seven years, I've been a product manager. Okay. So then like at some point, my product management side kicked in is like, okay, maybe we should go and ask users and figure out what the, okay. what the hell is going on here. So I... Um, I started talking with people and at the same time, I also applied to uh, Techstars uh, mm -hmm. Space Accelerator in LA. And I was still a solo founder at this point. And I got the first interview with them and I had to pitch to them and I wasn't sure what I was going to pitch to them. So I just made up this thing that, hey, this is still Earth Lab days where I said, um, Earth Lab is going to be the AWS of satellite data. Uh, that's what I pitched. Um, I did get in, or the company didn't get into Techstars, but so yeah, managing... just, just sorry, the Earth Lab was the name of the company that that you had started. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Sorry. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. No, no um, worries. And the managing director at that point um, of Techstars, he connected me with someone else um, in Singapore, mm -hmm. um, and the Singapore. Um, Techstar uh, managing director connected me with one of the shipping companies in Singapore. It's like, hey, they might be a good candidate for what you're doing. Because at this point, I still had just counting ships. Right. Uh, so this was like the start of a whole journey of learning a lot of different lessons throughout this process, which lasted for like about 14 months. Okay. Um, and if you look at any founding journey, like this 14 months is for whatever reason is like a critical point where founders either decide to throw a towel or like pivot or something. Okay. Uh, it's a very uh, 
important moment and like a startup journey for whatever reason. So, mm. yeah. And I can go more into that uh, as we talk more. So, yeah. So what, what happens like you, you, um, if I understand correctly, you're, you, you talk with those people um, about your idea of, of doing ship monitoring. What, what kind of happens from there? Are they like, oh, this is great. Or like, we've had seven people try to pitch us that idea before, or like, <laughs> this is great, but we have no idea how to use it. Like, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, what happens on, on what sounds like a reality check, maybe? Hmm. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great reality check on multiple levels. So the first thing was, they were not interested in counting ships. They okay. operate ships. Um, they manage a lot of the iron ore in the world. So mm-hmm. they ship it from mines uh, to like places where the iron is in demand. So they're like, no, we don't want to count ships. Like we know how much, how many ships there are. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> but they're like, what we would like to know is how much iron ore is um, sitting or coal is sitting at specific port. Um, so these are open pits. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something you can do? And then second thing they were interested in was progress on all the ships they have ordered from shipbuilding yards. So they okay. wanted to understand like once a month, like if, if there's going to be a delay um, or not in the delivery of those ships. And at this point I was like, yeah, sure enough. Like both of these, both of those things are doable. Um, right. And I constructed a business case and everything. And this is when like reality started to hit home. Um, because one, um, just optical imagery uh, was their expectation. And okay. their expectation was not some number. They wanted to actually look at physical. Uh, oh, right. Like, so they wanted to look at photos. Okay, they didn't want the um, analysis about the results of that that said this is how much um, ore is sitting in this port and maybe like a, a time series or, or something they wanted an actual image uh, of like that and they interpreted themselves exactly and they were fine as an ultimate goal they were okay with the analysis uh, or time series data but at least initially they wanted like some way to verify that what we are sharing with them was uh, actually is on the ground, or it was that's what was happening on the ground. Do you think that was a, a trust issue, as in like they wanted to be able to, to verify what you were what what you would have told them as well? Uh, yeah, definitely, and they were also wanted to understand what what they were paying for because yeah, uh, one of the mistakes I made was I at least in like the pricing conversation, I turned this conversation into uh, cost plus. Okay. And I've done some pricing in in the past and this was like, you never do that. You want to do like value-based pricing. And in this specific case, what I had done was tell them, oh, well, we can't have high resolution or ultra high resolution satellite imagery if this is is what you want to pay. Right. So at this point, like they were really expecting some sort of of imagery to look at before they can trust us to say, okay, this is what you're saying is true. Um, And 
And what I did was I, I actually manually annotated a lot of the imagery because there was no training data set at this point. Yeah. And I didn't want to spend thousands of dollars to like create this training data set and yeah. then having customers say like, nope, this is not working out. So I started manually. And when they looked at the manual annotation results, uh, there were a lot of details that only they would know um, that I wouldn't know while annotating. It's like, um, what is, how do you actually measure uh, a pile of iron ore? Um, mm how much volume is there right um, and a lot of those details were not known to me so okay right um, yeah and for me like a greater lesson there was this industry specific knowledge was super critical it's okay in in any data related business we generally say context is king and this was a great example of this in my previous life, I worked in industrial IoT um, and it was similar thing, like just providing data was not enough. You had to contextualize this data as well. Right. And I was seeing the same pattern here as well. So, yeah. So because you're, you're trying to solve someone's problem, you need to understand their problem as well and not just put the, put like a, a CSV on, on the plate and be like, oh, there you go, problem solved, right? Yeah, mm. yeah exactly. And I think, um, on top of that, we did not establish like very clear guidelines on uh, how much accuracy we are looking for. How are we going to verify right. this accuracy? Um, and these are some like good business lessons to learn, especially as a first-time founder. But also, I think this issue becomes very particular in Earth observation industry uh, because there's lack of ground truth data to say who is telling the truth, right? Um, okay, right. So so back to the, the trust problem, I would guess, is that we can make our analysis, but um, in terms of convincing people that those analyses are worth something, being able to, to validate those. Am I getting that exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And so um, you decided to, to kind of end uh, Earth Lab after, mm -hmm. after that. I'm curious, what was the moment where you, you decided to, to say, okay, that's, this is not working? Um, so actually there was one more step uh, I've mm -hmm. been through. Uh, sure. And um, Joe was actually quite instrumental, Joe Morrison. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had connected with Joe on Twitter and then uh, we're just chatting back and forth time to time. And then he pointed me to this uh, earth observation competition that the Asian Development Bank had put out. And um, I decided, okay, let's apply for it. Um, and at this point, um, if you know Arvind from um, tomorrow. Yeah, I had him on the podcast actually. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll put all of that in, in the show notes and, and tomorrow.io as well, yeah. which is a, a um, company that's trying to do weather uh, measurement and, and gather weather, weather data uh, as well yeah. from, from space. Yeah, so uh, I was talking with Arvind as well at this point and Arvind was like, do you wanna apply for it? I was like, yeah, let's do it. And let's do it together. So we okay. kind of uh, partnered up uh, just for this project and we won, like we got the project. <laughs> cool. 
Yeah. Um, so at this point, we had promised all these things to ADB that we can do this, this, and this with um, Earth observation data. Um, but point came like now it was time to deliver all this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we spoke with the ADB team. Um, it, this was their macroeconomics team. And when we spoke with them, the conversation was very surprising and pleasant in a good way. Because they said, like, we know that not all of these things are going to be 100% accurate or possible. What we really want to do is understand the potential of Earth observation for measuring economic indicators. Right. Um, so it turned into this uh, more of a learning opportunity for us, um, okay. as well as for the ADB. Um, and at this point, um, I was starting to understand like a lot of the dynamic in the market as well, because I had been doing this for about a year at this point. Um, and we were two months into this project and this is where it just started becoming very clear that either we are going to be a consulting business, we continue doing these kind of projects and eventually we'll find our stride or find a specific business problem um, that can be applicable to multiple businesses or at least one or two large segments and go into it and provide a business solution and uh, earth observation data could be one input to it. Um, and so this was kind of a soul searching moment as well right. where I started thinking about like, okay, well, what are the problems I can really get behind? Um, and climate was always top of my mind and mm. I was starting to think about what kind of climate related problems we can actually help with uh, if we start with our observation data. So that was, this was like kind of the pivot uh, personally for me about how I started looking at earth observation business and also earth lab. So, yeah. And so you, you decide to pivot, but you still decide to stay within earth observation and, and everything mm-hmm. geospatial. Um, yeah. and, and you just earlier mentioned that there's a, there's a problem which is around the ground truth and, and being able to validate that. So yeah. given all of that, I'm actually quite curious why you decided to, to still stay and like give it another shot. Yeah. Um, so what really attracted me to earth observation to begin with um, actually, there were two things. One, um, it's a very neutral data set, right? You can't, you can't really bias it. Uh, I mean, yes, like the processing that happens it may be able to bias it, but not in the bias will be consistent. So yeah, at least you have that going for you. Um, and then second thing was, uh, as humans, we have done a good enough job of uh, instrumenting and observing spaces we live in. Um, So like cities and rural areas, wherever humans are, you're gonna find some way of monitoring, observing what's going on. Um, Outside that, we don't have much clue what's going on. But Earth observation at least gives you that first layer um, of filtering that, okay, well, we need to probe deeper here. There's something going on here. There's some mm. changes happening here. Mm-hmm. And to me, from nature side, that's very important. Like that, that gives you this um, almost like a, 
a very good way to probe deeper into. And going back to my curiosity theme, this is where you can start becoming more curious about a specific location on the planet. Um, so for me, that was like the power of Earth observation. And I wanted to see that being applied to climate uh, science right. as well. So that's why I decided to stay with it. So at least we can start getting that first layer of uh, data. Um, and that helps us define and understand, should we instrument more spaces? How should we measure some of the changes happening on the ground? What should we do with it? So, yeah. Right, and so um, what comes out of that process? Because it, here it seems like now it's a little bit the other uh, way around. Like you've found the problem, at least a, a category of, of problems that you want to work with. And, and it turns out that this is a good tool with it. Like earth observation is a good tool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what, what kind of comes out of, of that? Um, so a couple of things uh, here that like kind of came together. Mm -hmm. uh, so first thing I... Uh, like a lot of our observation companies looking at climate, uh, they start with climate risk uh, side. And when you talk about climate risk, uh, generally wildfires will pop up. Uh, yeah. If you Google search, it's generally the first thing. Um, and the thing with climate uh, wildfires is it takes a lot of emotional space. So there was a lot of uh, focus and money going in there. But when I dug a little bit deeper into it, I realized that there are already very good companies working on that problem, mm -hmm. either on detection or prevention side or monitoring side. Um, but water was still largely ignored. Um, and almost like 90% of the natural hazards we have in the world have floods as secondary hazard associated with it or droughts as a secondary hazard. Mm -hmm. um, but there were not that, that many companies actually visibly at this at that point were right. actively looking into it. So that was one thing. Uh, and then second, um, the place I come from in India, um, we've seen a lot of floods there. Mm -hmm. And floods have had played like a major role in shaping the history of this city. Uh, so in fact, like the day I left India to go to the US for my graduate school, I had to leave two days earlier uh, because there were floods. And if I would have stayed back, I would have missed my flight, which back then my parents didn't have a lot of money to pay for another flight. Uh, so I couldn't say proper goodbye to my friends and family and stuff. It's a small thing, but still like floods have always been around in my life. So to me, it was a good opportunity uh, to look into. So we just started talking with a lot of uh, insurance companies and also people who would have large number of assets distributed across the world. And right. yeah, like whether it be hurricane or flash flood or some sort of river line flood, um, it was important to them. And at the same time, I was also talking with a couple of agriculture insurance companies and they also had uh, flood and drought as one of the major causes for losses. Mm -hmm. So this is where I found conviction that, okay, uh, water cuts across a lot of the climate risk problems um, and we need to start understanding it. And there are a lot of dimensions to it as right. well. So it was not super crowded space where um, it, everyone was just doing flood, flood extent measurement or flood prediction. So 
Yeah. Yeah. This is also um, one of the reasons I wanted to, to have a chat with you is because this is one of the stuff that I used to work on at, at my yeah. time at ISI. Um, and so I'm very curious to, to know um, from, from your side of, of, of things like your perspective on mm. just what the field of earth observation can bring in and mm. just how you're trying to tackle it um, as, as a whole. So yeah, I, um, I find that topic really interesting to, to first of all, because I've, I've worked on it, but I, I want to hear from people who are, are doing it differently um, a bit. Sure. And it's interesting to see that you're coming to a bit the same conclusions as well from, from another um, perspective. So what you have those conversations with people, what, what do they tell you about, uh, about what flooding and just water damage can do in general? Well, so it's very location specific. That was like the first thing. We learned. Mm-hmm. And when I say location specific, I'm, I don't mean like Texas versus Catalonia versus Amsterdam or something like that. I mean, within like few meters, and you know this much better than me. Uh, within few meters, you can have very different outcome from a flood, um, be it a presence of water, uh, or not, or it could be as simple as like damage uh, associated with it. So yeah, that was like the first thing that was very interesting. Uh, second thing was just the, the intensity and how long it lasts uh, can vary. Some floods like the top of our uh, worst case flood is going to be only for five minutes and after that, you may yeah. not have trace of it, right? So catching it at that moment was uh, sometimes was very challenging. And then third thing was a lot of the flood modeling, and I'm still learning about this. So I'm not an expert, so I may say something that may not be true. So take that with a grain of salt here. Uh, and third thing I noticed was a lot of the flood modeling was still done using uh, physics-based uh, modeling, yeah. um, right? Which in university, my focus was computational fluid dynamics. So I mean, right. I understand some limitations of like, if you're going to model movement of water at that large scale, what are the challenges? So there was still like a lot of parts that was um, under understood, mm-hmm. if I may. Um, and one of the things that I also noticed that there was a lack of a lot of validation data as well. Right. Uh, right. And it goes back to the, the, the properties of flood or like what happens during flood. It's, it's hyper-local plus it can last for only a few minutes to a few hours. So it's really hard to catch what exactly happened uh, during specific flood. Um, so those were some of the common trends. And then also on market side, I noticed a few things, which especially in the US market, um, in a way, flood insurance market is propped up um, because there's a backstop by federal government. Uh, so right now, um, there is not a lot of focus going into optimizing portfolio uh, using okay. better data sets as well, which was which was very peculiar uh, as well. Um, is that a lack and- of, of data that's just accessible about, about these things? 
Um, I think it, it was probably true uh, a year or two ago, mm-hmm. but not anymore, especially like some of great work coming out of First Street Foundation. Um, so I don't think that's true anymore. Now the question becomes whether there is incentive from insurance company sides or um, a real estate company side to actually use that data to optimize or change something. Right. And if you think about floods, is floods, especially flood insurance is just a financial instrument to manage the loss, right. uh, but it hasn't become an instrument to bring about change, to prevent the loss altogether. Right, so we're, we're more like compensating after something happens and like assessing the damage and being like, all right, this is what happened rather than taking action to prevent all that damage from happening. Exactly. And uh, of course, like insurance companies are in business of uh, providing insurance. They're not in the business of saying like, hey, we should, although there are some good insurance companies who are doing some great work in that area as well. Mm -hmm. And the National Flood Insurance Program also mandates that certain type of resilience is built um, if you want to be qualified for flood insurance. Uh, So it is becoming an instrument of change, but uh, it would be great to see it at a larger level as well. How do you see that um, happening? Sorry, sorry to cut you off. How, how do you, just just curious, how, how do you see that, yeah, change happening? Well, so I, I see this playing out in two ways. So, yeah. uh, so the first way is status quo. We continue down this path. Um, and soon enough where there is an uptake in flood insurance, because you also have to keep in mind that not everyone is buying flood insurance today from homeowners side, for example. Um, so uh, people who are actually buying or needing flood insurance, assume they're gonna, the risk of flood is going to be so high that insurance companies will have to think twice before insuring it, or they're gonna have to charge really high amount of premium. Uh, so what's gonna happen is either there won't be any flood insurance market uh, or large enough flood insurance market Uh, So insurance companies may not have enough incentive to continue investing in R&D for it. Uh, Or um, it may happen that the risk is so high now that if we really want to develop this market, we need to spend some money to bring that risk back to some level where it's manageable, where it's affordable for both parties. Um, I'm hoping for that second scenario where um, that it goes well, hopefully we don't have to wait till it go, gets really high and yeah. business leaders have enough foresight to see like, okay, well, we may not have a market here if we don't do something about it right now. Uh, so the second scenario, as I said, is bringing that risk back to a manageable level. Um, and I was talking with some insurance leader, reinsurance company leader, and this person mentioned like, we have seen this similar dynamic in the past. Um, as hurricanes started picking up and creating a lot of damage in the US, for example, Mm. um, everyone thought like, this is it. This was like, uh, this is it for insurance companies and reinsurance companies. Um, But they responded, um, they pivoted and the whole cat modeling industry was born out of it. Uh, So they figured out a way around it. So they didn't build resilience, but at least they responded. Uh, right. with long-term thinking. So I think that can happen in uh, flood 
and water related risk industry as well. So. And like, I can you help me understand what you guys are trying to to get to? Like, what is so so? Yeah, let's backtrack. You you started something new out of out of the, the previous experience that you had at, at Earth Lab. Um, mm-hmm. It's called Influence and. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing it that right, by the way. Yes, I've mostly right. seen it written. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you, you start that out and yeah, can you kind of walk me through what what that attempt at, at solving that problem is? Sure. So to the core of it, we are trying to understand water risk. Uh, either what is that risk today? Um, so this manifests in terms of floods, droughts, availability of water mm-hmm. um, and then how will it evolve in the future um, so that's the second part of the question we are trying to answer uh, for us our observation data is a great starting point because as i mentioned earlier there's still lack of good validation data right for the existing physics physics-based model but also to understand what had happened in the past um, so we we are starting with our observation data because that's what we know right. well or good enough, uh, not to the level of ISI uh, or cloud history, but we know our way around it. And at this point, like we are looking at different problem sets where this type of water risk manifests in itself. So this could be as simple as insurance, um, flood risk mod- modeling, uh, but there is also uh, real estate industry or supply chain, which can see disruption and they need to start thinking about adaptation strategies. So we want to enrich our data set with other types of data as well to help them make that transition. Like, okay, if you want to avoid that business uh, disruption because of floods, um, these are the five different things you should be able to uh, do and start thinking about it. And then they should be able to also think about what are the trade-offs here um, because not all of them are going to be available to them right away. And this is just one example of like one sector. Um, and in agriculture, this could be uh, what type of crops are we growing here and is it still compatible? Right, okay. Uh, is it going to be compatible five years from today, or 10 years from today? because we need to start thinking about it today for food security as well. So mm-hmm. there are huge implications of water mismanagement and not understanding water risk. And that's what we are trying to solve today, so. Right. And so I wanna, I wanna take a, a step back. Um, what do you, there's a lot of companies that are uh, kind of popping up and getting funded in, in this whole earth observation field. Um, that that we're in over the past few years, there's been like this massive growth of, of um, well, yeah, growth of, of the companies that are um, like the number of companies kind of tr- trying to do that. Mm. Where do you think that kind of goes with, with like, do you think it has to keep going down? Like companies trying to solve a, a specific problem, like like what you're trying to, to pivot towards? Like, how do you think, I'm just curious what you think about like where the industry itself is is going 
you've tried it uh, once, you're, you're trying it again. Like, I'm, I'm very curious to get your perspective as, as, you know, having thought about maybe a bit bigger picture than I have. Huh. What are you thinking about where this whole, um, the, the industry kind of in general is going from, you know, the, the perspective of someone who's, who's founded, um, like, I think two companies by now. I, I don't know if you've had any other ones. <laughs> But I'm, yeah, I'm just, just very curious to. about, like, what are your thoughts on, on that um, in, in general? That's, uh, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think more loaded than who are you question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what, what I, you know, the, what I'm trying to understand is that um, I, I want to understand from your perspective, which is very different from mine, I'm, I've been more deep in the weeds and in, in like trying to implement those stuff, part of a team that, that does that, that's still what I'm doing. I'm, I'm a data scientist at, at core and, and speaking to people at night. <laughs> and, and I want to understand kind of those different points of views from, from a higher perspective, from a lower perspective, mm-hmm. kind of where do you see things having gone? Cause you've been in this for now, um, I think a couple years as well. And, and, how do you see like the market being, for example, in, in, in a few years where, where, you know, a lot of companies are, are trying to, to grow these things and it feels like not all of them are necessarily trying to solve a problem, uh, a mm-hmm. specific problem all the time. The number of, of websites that you see coming up where it's like, we're going to make geospatial data available. And you're like, wow, that's, that's great. But I've, I've seen <laughs> 10 of those. And so I'm just, you know, is, is that a thing that you're seeing as well or not? Um, you know, maybe to, to try to make that, that question <laughs> a bit less bloated because it is indeed. Uh, yeah. I'm just, you know, trying to understand a little bit like how you think about the, the industry as it is. Yeah, so I think um, as you rightly pointed out, like there's a lot of companies coming up left and right. Um, so at least on the company starting level or founding level, I'm seeing a lot more focus now on different sensor uh, types, right? Uh, right, Which is great, actually. Um, and the question I always ask myself is, if these companies, the data providers or data generators, the core of their business is going to be operating the fleet of satellites and making data available, um, then how is that business gonna align with analytics layer or application layer? Um, And I haven't found a good example of it yet. Um, So I'm not convinced that those companies will be able to pivot and say like, we are actually a problem specific company. Uh, Even like, uh, even companies like, that want to measure very specific things. Ultimately, the applications are very different and then they are letting specialized people do things with that data. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like infrared sensor is a great example. Like most of the time, the application that comes to mind is measuring building energy footprint or intensity. Right, so, so you're saying that the sensor itself is already tied to, to the application in a lot of times. Well, at least that's how it's presented to us. But right. I don't think when you actually look at these companies' websites, at least like they're, they're either trying to figure it out, like where else we can fit, because they are a satellite operations company. They are not actually an analytics company or they have, right, right, right. They haven't, right? They're going to they're gonna have challenge. They're going to have a hard time like 
becoming an analytics company, at least in my opinion. Um, but, and then the second thing is a lot of the problems that are meaty and big enough to solve, um, I think they're gonna require multi-sensor approach, be it earth observation sensor or like some other type of sensor or other type of data. And we have already started, we have already seen this like where um, an optical data company is not gonna sell their data to a SAR data company easily. So the collaboration, unless you're like a large uh, company like Maxar or um, Airbus, you're not gonna have that luxury of being able to get access to multiple types of uh, sensor data. Um, so that's going to be the other challenge for these uh, sensor or data provider uh, right. companies. And then to the second part is like the analytics company, like how Earth Lab started, right? Oh, we're gonna make geospatial data more accessible. I, I'm sure I have used that line and on Earth Lab's website at some point. Why do you think that line comes up so often? Like, do you, do you, do you have an, an, an idea, a hunch about like, it, it seems like that comes up a lot. And then do, do, you, do you know, or do you have any idea about why that actually might be the case? Because I, I feel like I hear that sentence about, we hear that all the time, all the time as well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious, do you, do, you, do you have like an idea about why that, that actually might be the case? Is it because we actually haven't solved that problem? And so we keep bringing it up because each time someone, um, someone else comes in the industry, they're like, hey, guys, get, get your stuff together. I, I have a couple of theories there. Uh, one is like a very startup, startup-y tagline, like we're going to make this accessible or that accessible. Oh, right, uh, yeah. Right, so uh, coming from IoT uh, side of things, uh, internet of things, it was the same thing. Like, oh, you don't have to worry about calibrating or cleaning your data, we'll take care of it for you. Right. So, um, and that probably worked in terms of raising money or at least like mm. getting some attention. So maybe that. And then second, if you look at like some of the earlier Earth observation companies, like satellite companies, that's what they claim to fame that we're going to make satellite data more accessible, uh, planet to be specific. Um, and even in that case, it's like when I was naive and I'm still naive, but <laughs> well, welcome to the club. I consider yeah. myself just as naive. So, uh, when I started in Earth observation, I was like, "Oh, well, this data is super useful, but it's really hard to work with." Yeah. So let me solve that problem. So everyone just thought, like, "Oh, well, Planet claims that they are doing this, but they are not really doing it. So I'm going to solve for it." Um, so maybe that's like the the pull in. Uh, saying that we're gonna make we're gonna do it we're gonna make it more accessible. Um, the question a lot of people don't ask is like, are you gonna make it accessible to whom? Yeah. And to do what? And this was the question I didn't ask when I started Earth Lab. And uh, fourteen months later, at that magical time, uh, I asked myself like, who are we making this accessible for, and to do what? Um, and that unlocked a lot of things and results are yet to be seen, but at least so far it seemed to be making sense. So what do you think of um, Mark, the Microsoft planetary computer um, and very recently Google Earth Engine um, mm -hmm. just announced that they would be open to um, commercial applications. Mm -hmm. So 
Google Earth Engine being, well, as the name suggests, Google's um, kind of platform where they have a lot of data that is merged together, that's co-registered together. And then Microsoft's on the other side is, is um, using things like stack, spatial, temporal asset catalog, um, and a, a lot of um, open source tools. What do you think of, of those approach in that term of making data more accessible? I think they are fantastic. I really welcome them because one, it just brings more awareness. Uh -huh. um, and on top of that, they're actually preparing the next generation of data scientists and engineers right. and analysts to really start using and understanding this type of data as well. Um, whether they will be enterprise level commercial uh, analytics platforms or not, uh, yet to be seen. Um, again, like since I have more experience on IoT side as well, like I go back to that example, yeah. there were a lot of analytics platform or this kind of um, aggregation and analytics platform for IoT data as well, especially on industrial IoT. Um, the challenge was always, can you turn those, um, turn that analytics and data into some sort of actionable business results fast mm -hmm. enough? Um, and if the complexity of the data in itself is a problem, enterprise adoption is not going to be easy. The core business is, if, especially if a company's core business is not interpreting this kind of data, they would still look to someone to do that work for them and have some ready-made uh, uh, solution. Um, and this kind of like, this challenge exists not only for those big platforms and analytics companies, even for startups, like um, during customer discovery phase, ideally you want a pilot customer who will be able to co-develop your product yeah. with you, right? Um, but since you are supposed to be the expert in earth observation data and interpreting it and processing it and analyzing it, you're not going to get a lot of help from your customer side, but the customer can still provide you with good, very good business context. Mm -hmm. So take that. And now if a customer has to not only provide business context, but as well as the analytics and all the technical know-how of using earth observation data, I think the adopt adoption is going to be much slower and much more challenging. In industrial IoT, you, a lot of projects failed not because the results were not good enough, because you could not get to results fast enough. As in they, they being developed? Is that um, what you mean? Or what, what, what is fast enough in this context? Yeah, so uh, what we saw was... Uh, when I worked at industrial, when a company starts on an IoT project on their own, um, they will install sensors, they'll start getting this data online and stuff, and then right. do something with it. That whole process would take them anywhere from nine months to 18 months. Okay. But a lot of enterprise successful projects, the ROI is very short, like especially for these kind of early adopter projects, mm. you want ROI to be like six months or less. So when your executive sp sponsor is waiting for 18 months to like really see uh, the outcome, 
companies will lose interest. They won't get budgeted. So there's like, there are a lot of business reasons for it to not work that way. So, yeah. I want to take a, a complete shift. Um, you you mm-hmm. mentioned something earlier that um, when, when you were answering my um, very common first question, um, you, you mentioned that um, being Indian was a big part of, of who yeah. you are. Um, I'd like yeah. to, to touch a little bit about that. What did you uh, mean by that? Um, well, first and foremost, um, my country gave me a lot of opportunity, like as simple as providing education all the way to uh, the foundation it built and like the reputation India has across the world that has helped me. It's like a tailwind that you always have. Um, Second, um, if you ask this to any Indian, a lot of them would say like they feel like they have some special responsibility. I think they won't be able to tell you what exactly is that, but they think that they have some special responsibility in this world. Right. So um, that somehow I carry with me um, and not in the sense of like saving someone or anything, but to participate in this world and do something good with the opportunities you have. Um, and that has been a major motivator for me in my career as well. Like things I did, um, I had a chance to work for an oil and gas company and it, I don't think that they're not doing uh, valuable work, but at the same time, my values didn't align with it. Right. And I was able to like make that decision, even though I was in a pinch that, um, that like, no, this is, this is not something I want to do. So on decision-making level, it, it drives uh, parts of me. And if you look at climate change, um, the parts that are going to get affected the most uh, are countries like India, but they were not the ones who actually took up a lot of the carbon budget. They, were, they are not the ones who actually developed themselves using a lot of the, uh, the problems we have. And not to say that they are not going in the same direction. They have, they have to act and they need to do something. But a lot of the people in these countries, they don't have platform voice or privilege to say something or to do something and to get themselves out of the harm's way. Um, so I feel a little bit of uh, like empathy and that, okay, can we do something for them with the access and opportunities we have? So this is why like India, I see it as like also like a conduit to reach out to people from other part of the world who are in similar situation. And throughout my travels, like this has resonated really well. Like as soon as I say I'm from India, people have really warm response. Right. and. So yeah, it's, it's a complex topic for me, but I think it drives a lot of decisions and it built my value system. Uh, so that's why it's very important too. And, and how has it been? Cause you mentioned you moved to, to the US, um, I think you said to, to go study. Um, yeah. How was, how has that been kind of, how has that process been? I know that um, in, in the US and, and in Europe, a lot of the time it's very self-centered. Um, and so I'm just curious to know how that experience kind of has been carrying that, that baggage that, that you had and just having um, a, a, a 
cultural difference in just in the way of seeing things in the way where um, people talk about the problems they're solving, just all of that yeah. in general. Uh, that's, that's actually a very good question. And thanks for bringing it up. Um, so first, like one thing you learn in India is dealing in gray areas, like uncertainty is always there. So mm -hmm. it also creates, or it prepares you for this thinking of like, things are not always binary. Uh, and the reason I say this is just because I have love for India doesn't mean uh, I can't have love for uh, yeah. the US and Spain and Europe now, right? Um, and just having that knowledge and be, having that knowledge part of me made my experience in the US as well as now in Spain very valuable and enjoyable. Like I was able to connect with a lot more people. Uh, I was able to immerse myself in the culture really well. Um, and in terms of like looking at problems, like I still learned a lot. Uh, like it, the default mindset in India, not always, but could be that this is how life is. This is the outlook, mm. um, which also sometimes leads to where no one would take responsibility of, for things. Whereas in the US, what I saw was like this personal responsibility to a whole new level where okay. people believe they are responsible for whatever the life outcome they have and they will do something about it. I mean, not just like any other place, not everyone is going to be the same. So same yeah, thing of course. in the US as well. So that was, that was really uh, amazing. And in, in Europe as well, uh, it's, it's really amazing to see like how your national identity can take a backseat here. Um, and there's the pan-European identity, but also like this focus towards like solving world's problem. Right. Um, if you look at like most of the earth observation data that can be helpful for SDG comes from European Space Agency, uh, which is really powerful to see that um, as like countries can come together and like work towards a common goal. Um, so overall, it's a net positive experience for me. Um, there are sometimes like conflicting um, values, but that doesn't mean like I can't resolve for it or at least I've developed enough empathy at this point to understand like, well, it's just, I come from a very different background or I see this thing from a different perspective but that doesn't mean the other perspective is not valid so yeah yeah of course. I, I think that's one of the such interesting things about um like the, the field that we're in is that um a, a lot of people come in wanting to solve problems and so that means it, it ends up bringing in people that have very different problems and come from very different places um and to me, that that makes the, this field just so rich. Um, and why this making this podcast is so interesting is is to see that, you know, among the people that are trying to solve problem, I think talking about climate, I think we're a generation that's kind of growing up uh, with this thing about like it's kind of gonna come out knocking at our door soon, and so we'd better start doing that. And it's there's something quite powerful about 
seeing that that crosses borders as well. Um, maybe it's a little bit naive to think it's going to, to unite some people, but at least kind of hearing that, you know, people are trying to solve those those problems and they come from different places and they have different cultures, I think is is great, especially when then it comes to being in this field where I think we definitely have not all the tools, but some of the tools to, to at least be able to, to have a certain change on that. Yeah, and to that point, like it's also the diversity of solutions now you're seeing from our yeah, generation. Exactly. It's amazing because I spent four and a half years in Silicon Valley and okay. um, a lot of the solutions that come out of Silicon Valley are typically about techno uh, solutions or right. the technology oriented solutions, which is great, but we haven't, th- we haven't put a lot of thought into climate justice or um, also there is like a public relations problem when we talk about climate crisis. Like how come we have so many people who can still uh, deny or not understand where the planet is going? And what we are seeing now is instead of just looking at it as a scientific problem, uh, we are starting to realize it's a cultural, social, economic as well as tech scientific problem that's in front of us. And we're gonna need every type of talent. Um, and this every type of talent, they're gonna to have to do their best work in order to actually move the needle here. So, which is very energizing. And right now we are in tech stars and this is what we are seeing. Like you see all the founders from different backgrounds and different countries and the amazing work they are doing is just mm. fantastic. Can you, um, let, let's go a little bit actually at that. We didn't really go over. How has that process been at, at Techstar? Um, can you just, first of all, explain a little bit what that is and then kind of how that process has been to, to, to work with them? Sure. So uh, for those of you not initiated, uh, Techstars is an accelerator, um, just like Y Combinator. Um, what Techstar does is instead of having a huge class in single place, they believe that good companies and good talent can come from anywhere. Uh, so they have very intimate uh, class of 10 companies and they are sector specific classes. So the program we are in uh, is a sustainability program. It's in partnership with the Nature Conservancy. So Techstar generally find like an industry partner. Um, and the whole goal of this uh, accelerator is uh, accelerate your business building or your mm-hmm. impact building. So that's the goal. And as such, they provide you with mentorship, uh, funding, uh, tools, and advice. And it gets amplified via their network. Um, so that's what Techstars is. And we got accepted um, a, for this year's class and we started the uh, class in September. Um, so we are still halfway through the program, but so far it's been like drinking from fire hose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of the mentors you get to meet, they have built amazing companies, sold them. Um, they've worked with UN Ops, they've worked with White House. So you get to listen to their perspective from uh, like whatever history they had and they have. But also you get to listen to a lot of different perspective about the same problem, which is, has been the most mind bending 
thing as a founder, because you go to mentors and you think, I have this problem and they're going to all have the same solution to this problem or same advice for the right. problem, but no. So one of the things I'm learning is how do you calibrate that and also turn it into some bite-sized, more actionable experiments mm -hmm. to really test out the advice. Um, and then second thing is just intense focus. So one thing Techstars is very good at is uh, helping you find that focus. So okay. um, that has been a great process because they put us in touch with couple of uh, potential customers and like go talk to these people, figure out exactly what are they trying to do in this moment? What are their problems? And then can you help them solve those problems? Can you help them do their job? Um, and they do it in a very structured way. So it's repeatable. Um, you can learn from those experiments over and over and that has been very refreshing. Right. And then the greatest part is the people that you surround yourself with, uh, the managing director of our program and the program staff. Uh, they've been just absolutely amazing. And all the other founders um, that are in the program, they're very inspiring because you see them, some of them are uh, at the same stage as us. Some of them are a few steps ahead of us. And when you talk to them and you realize you're not alone because from the outside, startup building always looks like everyone is just hitting home run or yeah, yeah, goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but inside it's really messy. But when you talk to founders, um, then you realize, oh, wait, it's, it's not as clean as it sounds. Like it's really messy inside. Um, and that gives you a lot of confidence. So right. it's been a great confidence building exercise as well. So, And, and in, in that program, is it... Um, uh, you mentioned that there were like people do, doing many different things. Is it all centered around technology or, or is it all about data? Like how wide of a net are we talking about here? And, and I'm just very curious as well, because um, I'm guilty of that through this podcast around as well, is to kind of niching things down into like, oh, there's geospatial and there's the rest of the world. We don't really care about it. But uh, I'm curious to know like, what kind of other profiles have you been working with in, in terms of other founders? Mm. And what has that brought as well in, in you trying to solve your problem? So at the most tactical level, um, um, other founders are working on all sort of different uh, problem set. So one founder, Anele, um, through Eagle Global, she's trying to bring more transparency into green infrastructure building in, in Africa. Um, and there's another founder, Saif, who is building Renaster systems and they are instrumenting natural parks and natural reserves with sensors to measure different things. Um, and we have a Climatescape that is trying to bring more transparency into retail climate investing as well. Okay. Uh, so you have all different flavors and uh, different type of problems they're working on. The great thing is you can still find common threads. So um, I can go talk with Siphons like, hey, I don't have this type of data to validate my model. Uh, can you help me get it? Um, is there some partnership we can think about? So on the business level, there's al always a benefit. Or I can go talk with Manuela, the co-founder of Climatescape, and she can give me a lot of advice on like, 
oh, we went through a pivot and this is how we thought about it, or this is how we thought about our vision building and how do we translate that into actual uh, actionable work. Um, so you can learn from this. And then on top of that, like you, I don't have a lot of experience in uh, working in Africa or Asia for that matter, but there are founders who have, and I can go talk to them and right. they will tell me what to expect, what not to expect, what to do, who should I talk to? And they're more than happy to connect, connect us with them as well. So um, there's a lot of synergy there. Uh, I hate the word synergy, <laughs> it's very corporate speak, but in this case, there is a lot of synergy there. Right, right, right. So yeah, that, I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier, where it's not just about the, the data and the technology, but it's also about like interacting with people in, in different places and things like that. So I can imagine that that being very valuable. I think one of the things I'm learning through, through these, all these conversations and just my, my own kind of career is that you realize that once you have the, the data, you, the problem is just half solved. It's, it's turning that into uh, something actionable or, or impactful. Different people have different words for that. But I, I can imagine that being very useful in, in kind of realizing, all right, we have some insight, some information that could maybe be useful for someone, um, but turning that into something where there's actually going to be a change is, is probably half the battle still. Yeah. And a lot of times we expect revolutions in order to solve problems, but right. incremental change is generally more effective. Uh, I've seen this like through my previous jobs as well, where uh, going back to IoT, we were just like, oh, we're gonna bring all this data and that's gonna solve all your operational issues. No, a lot of times the way we had to do was let's make 10% improvement and then mm. make 5% improvement on top. Um, I don't think long lasting change happens like, overnight. Uh, and again, like this is, this is an example of like data is the first clue. It just brings us visibility, but right. then how do we define those targets, incremental targets? Like, okay, what can we do now? Now that we understand what is happening on the ground, we have some baseline here. Um, so it's kind of the anti-diet disruptive approach in a way. Yeah, I mean, even like the most successful disruptions, uh, these disruptions are system disruptions, mm. for example, right? Um, they were not like overnight uh, adoption of new technology. There's always slow penetration of technology uh, through different use cases, but um, there was never like overnight adoption and like all of a sudden culture changed. Like even like digital cameras, it, it didn't happen just within one year, everyone yeah. just decided, right? It took like 10 to 12 years to actually, mm, mm, mm. the world we see today, but the digital cameras were invented like so many years ago. Yeah, so. right, I, no, I, I see what you mean. So yeah, it's, it's a slow process. And I think when we think about earth observation in a way to, to get back to that, I think it's, it's the same thing, like the, the field is not new. It's, it's been around for decades. The, the way we access the data, the data itself is still very incrementally getting better in, in the large um, kind of scope of, of the problems that we're, we're trying to solve. Yeah. I think that's actually a 
pretty nice place to, to leave it. Um, I think this was a really interesting talk about just, just a, a different path than the one I've taken. And I, I find it very interesting to, to learn from, from what you've done. I'm really thankful for, for you coming on and, and sharing, you know, the, the journey you've gone through, through earth lab. Um, you talked about it on Twitter. I really wanted to, to talk about that. And I'm, I'm thankful that you came on and, and kind of talked about some of, of the missteps that you've had and then uh, going, going on over and, and starting building uh, influence. Before we, we finish though, there's again, one question that I like to, to sure. finish it with. Um, and so, yeah, I, I try to ask um, if there's any book recommendations or, or podcast actually, um, or, or documentaries or anything that you've, you've come across recently that you think would be interesting for, for earth observation or for anything else, but just that hasn't impacted you in, in any meaningful way that you think would be worth um, sharing. Wow. Uh, I'm going to give a fun book recommendation. Yeah, uh, let's do it. Uh, it's called Enemy of the Mankind. Uh, yeah. It's about a pirate named Henry Avery and uh, how he was pivotal in British Empire's rise in India. So it's based on true story. Okay. Uh, and a lot of the book takes place in my hometown back in India. So which personally it was really cool because some of the locations we mentioned, like they still exist and I've been there multiple times. So, uh, but the book is also very interesting because you see some of the patterns that, uh, that are repeating in a way. Um, and I just find it very cool to just see the history repeat itself. Uh, not to be pessimist, but at least if you can find that pattern that history is repeating, that's when mm. you intervene or you can try to change something versus just being oblivious and not learning from history. So this is why I think this book is really cool. And it's a fun read as well, if you like pirates. All right, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> um, great. Well, Jinmei, thanks a lot for, for coming here and, and spending some of, of your valuable time with me. This was a, a really fun, uh, interesting conversation. Well, thanks so much for having me, Max. Uh, really had uh, fun talking with you um, and looking forward to listening to your podcast. Mm -hmm.